we're going to be in the book of First John this morning. First uh, John chapter uh, one is where we're going to be at today. And so, if you have I trust, you brought a copy of God's Word, and we're going to be reading the Scripture today. We'll be studying the Scriptures and considering what the Lord um, has to say to us uh, this morning. First John chapter one. We're going to look at verses eight and nine, but our Scripture reading is going to be from verses five to chapter two, verse two. Uh, chapter 5, chapter 2, verse 2. All right, verse, chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 2. And let's begin with the reading of God's word uh, this morning. This is a message we have heard, John writes. We have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have sinned, we have if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning um, sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you were to take a survey today, if you were to survey the pundits of the media or on the university campuses, asking what ails modern man and contemporary society, and what is the solution for the ailments of mankind, what would you hear? Social inequity and poverty, racial injustice, lack of opportunity, lack of education, white privilege, children being raised by single parent homes and absentee dads, drug use and opioid addictions. And the list could go on and on. What is it that ails mankind, contemporary society, and what is the solution? 1973, psychologist Carl Menninger shocked modern sensibilities with his book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. And in his scathing critique of modern day preaching, he noticed the absence of the S word, sin. In a chapter entitled, The Disappearance of Sin, an eyewitness account, Menninger wrote, in all of the laments and the reproaches made by our seers and prophets, preachers, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of prophets. It was a word once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all our troubles? 
sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty, perhaps, of a sin that could be repented and repaired or atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know. But is no one responsible? No one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression, we all acknowledge, and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? These are the questions that Menninger asked 50 years ago. And you think of where we are today. Has anything changed? If you go back another 25 years to the year 1948, Martin Luther, or Martin Luther, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching through this book, 1 John, when he came to this passage, listen to what he said in 1948 when he preached a message on the passage that we're considering today. So there is this common deep-seated objection to the whole New Testament doctrine of sin. And of course, along with that goes the view of life, which maintains that, rea- which maintains that really things are not quite as bad as the Bible and the theologians in the past have made it out to be. This is what mankind says. So long as we do our best and look to God occasionally for a little help, then everything can be put right. We must not take these things too seriously. To be a Christian, this is mankind's view, not the scripture view. To be a Christian is to be as decent as we can be and do good and so on. Expecting a certain amount of aid from God when needed. So we say our prayers and attend an occasional act of worship, and thus we go on. We must not think of, these, uh, think of all this in those tragic terms of desperate sin and overwhelming, and some overwhelming need for the grace of God. This is how society views what is wrong. And so 75 years later, multiple generations later, has anything changed? And so if we were asked those same pundits what is wrong with what ails modern society, modern man, and what is the solution, what would we hear? Well, what we need is we need affordable housing. And what we need is socialized medicine. And what we need is free education. And yet, are these not all the programs that we have tried and have hoped in over the past century to no avail? It is into this dilemma and the absence of answers and into this despair that the timeless truths of God's word speak. The aged Apostle John writes with clarity to the challenges that were faced by the church in his day. And the answers to the troubles that the church 
faced then is the answer to the troubles that we face today. And John is going to say that the solution to what ails man is not to address what is out there, but the solution to what ails man is found in addressing with what is in here. It is going to be the issue of sin. And as we look into the scripture that we consider here today, we'll discover that because we cannot deny sin, we may try to deny sin, we may dismiss it, minimize it, rationalize it, we'll redefine it, we'll cover it, hide it, we'll blame it, but we cannot deny sin, and because we cannot deny sin, the answer that John and the Word of God is going to present, not only to us, but for the world out there, is that Jesus Christ must become our advocate and our atonement. That Jesus Christ must become both our advocate before God and our atonement for our sin. Now, that's where I intended to end up. I had intended to end up in verse 2. We're only going to get through verse 9. So, you have to come back next week to have the rest of it. But we'll get there anyways, right? So, what we take a look at, we take a look at this passage here. What I want you to notice here, in the passage that we read this morning, that there were three claims that were being made by people in John's day that are still being made today that John is going to counteract. He's going to confront. He's going to address. And we see those claims that are, and those claims are attempting to deny the reality of sin. Uh, Verse 6, you have the first claim that we looked at last Sunday. And that is if we claim to have fellowship with God, but we live in darkness. We live in sin. That's the first claim. The second claim is in verse 8, the claim that we're going to look at this morning. If we claim that we have no sin, we're going to take a look at that. What does that mean? And then the third claim is in verse 10. If we claim that we have not sinned, and we're going to consider that, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday. But so let's consider these three, three false claims denying sin. The first claim that we looked at last Sunday, that is where the problem of sin is denied, verses 6 and 7. This is a claim that falsely asserts that we can, that one can have fellowship with God while living habitually in a lifestyle of sin with no repentance, with no conviction, with no desire to change. I'm going to live here in sin and I'm going to walk with God here. And John says, you can't do that, you're lying. You're lying to others. We would call that, you're, you're being a hypocrite. You're claiming one thing and you're living another way. You're lying, John says, and you're lying to yourself. Let's consider the second claim. First claim, the problem of sin is denied. The second claim is the problem the problem or the presence of sin is uh, denied. The presence of sin is denied. Uh, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's what verse 8 says. If we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so this false claim here says, I, I don't have sin. Or I'm without sin. And on the surface level, at face value, we might consider this claim as absurd. What? Who, 
Who claims sin? Who, who claims this? That I have no sin. I'm without sin. This is a hypothetical, nonsensical claim that John is raising. Well, not so fast. We need to remember who John was writing to and what the issue was that he was addressing. Now, he was writing to a particular group of Christians, first century, the end of the first century. As I said at the start of this study several weeks ago, the threat that the early church faced at the end of the first century was the rise, the beginning of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which promoted this Greek sense of philosophy, uh, Greek philosophical sense of dualism. Matter is evil, spirit is good. And the early teaching of Gnosticism that threatened the early church went something like this. Since the body is matter and matter is evil, the body is therefore irredeemable and so what you do with your body really doesn't matter. God doesn't care what you do with your body. What you do with your body doesn't matter because your body does, can affect your relationship with God. It's, it's going to be destroyed because your body is inherently evil. You can do whatever you want to do with your body. And that was the teaching, this perverse teaching, that was beginning to corrupt the early church. John begins to address that here in these verses. This claim, I'm without sin, was really saying, what I do with my body doesn't matter. My spirit is right with God, and so whatever happens in the flesh is immaterial. It doesn't matter. And so we have to stop and ask ourselves a question. Does, does this claim that was being made then, is that claim still relevant for today? Does it still manifest itself today? And if so, how? And I think there are, let me share with you three ways this morning that we begin to see this claim being promoted today. Remember where we started in the message, right? We live in a culture that has dismissed the reality of sin. Sin's not my problem. And so how does this claim, I'm without sin, show up today? Let me give you three ways that this claim shows up today. The first claim, the first way this claim shows up, this claim is a denial of total depravity. A denial of total depravity. Now, <clears throat> just stick with me here. We're going to kind of unpack this. I want you to understand this. We understand where we're going. and We, we need to get to the solution too. So just kind of walk with me, all right? You guys good? All right. <clears throat> total depravity, this theological concept that says that inherited sin or our sin nature has affected every part of our being, right? Now let me give you what total depravity does not mean. Does not mean that I am as bad as I could possibly be. That you are as bad as possibly can be, right? That is not what total depravity teaches, right? Some people say, well, I don't believe in total depravity because I'm, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as I could possibly you know, That's not what... Total depravity says this. That the sin nature that we've inherited from Adam has affected every part of our being, right? Has affected every part of our being. My, our minds, our spirits, our wills, our emotions, our body. The body dies. 
it craves sinful appetites. Think about our emotions. Emotionally, we become vexed. We become nervous, anxious. We become depressed. In our attitude, we vacillate between, you think about our attitudes, how we look at life, circumstances, others, right? We vacillate between narcissistic arrogance and self-loathing hatred on the other end. And somewhere in between these polar extremes, we find ourselves moving back and forth. We may not be a narcissist that everybody seems to be diagnosed with now, but we vacillate at times between those things, those polar extremes. I choose, in our will, we choose to rebel against God. We think perverse thoughts against God. We think profane, or perverse thoughts against people and profane thoughts against God. In our spirits, we're separated from God. The Bible says that we're dead apart from Jesus Christ, alive physically, dead spiritually, estranged from God. This is total depravity. This claim denies that we are totally depraved, or we might say radical corruption, that, that we are comprehensively depraved. So how does this denial of total depravity show up in our thinking, in our talking, in our belief system? Here's a couple ways. I'm basically a good person, and sometimes I do bad things. Ever think that? Ever say that? Inherently, I'm pretty good. I, I desire good things. I'm not a monster. Yes, sometimes I do bad things, but I, I, mean, I could be a whole lot worse. This denial denies the extent to which sin has corrupted me. Another manifestation. I'm not totally bad. There's a part of me that does good and does good, or desires good and does good things. This is similar to the first and it says inside of me there, there's a part of me that desires to do good and actually does good and yet what this denial fails to account for it fails to account what the scriptures have said Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 all of us have become like the one who is unclean and all of our righteousness are like filthy rags we shrivel up we all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind and like the wind, our, our sin sweeps us away. Isaiah 64, 6. There's a second way that this claim uh, shows up, and it's a, the claim is, a deny, uh, is, a, is an avoidance of personal, uh, of personal responsibility, an avoidance of personal responsibility. And in this, this ex expression of this claim says things like this. I do bad things, but it's not my fault. It recognizes that, that, that we are guilty of doing things that are improper and impure and not, not up to God's standard, but we're not responsible for it, right? It's someone else's fault. Uh, my bad choices are not my fault. It's because of something else. Something made me this way. It's because I didn't have a father growing up or I didn't have a good relationship with my mother. I was bullied at school. I didn't do well when I was a student at school. It's the internet. It's the internet. That's the way I am. Uh, the way I am. That's why I have problems. It's my dysfunctional family. It's my psychological makeup. This is just how I am. This is the whole nature versus nurture argument. We don't sin because we are sinners by nature, but we sin because of how we were nurtured. 
how we were raised, our life experiences. And finally, third way that this false claim shows up is that it's an assertion of sinless perfection. An assertion of sinless perfection. It goes something like this. Sinless perfection goes something like this. I have been saved, I've been sanctified, and I no longer sin. Now, I'm not aware how often this is taught today anymore, but there have been some in, throughout church history. There have been periods of time, there's been people, there have been denominations who have taught a doctrine called sinless perfection. Sinless perfection is the supposed state a believer achieves when he no longer sins anymore. Because I've been saved, I no longer sin. I just say all of that to say that before we move on from verse 8 and say, well, that's hypothetical and it really doesn't relate, we see this claim still being asserted in a number of ways today in our thinking, in our actions, in our belief system. If we claim that sin has not affected every part of our being, that there is a part of us that is morally and inherently good, or if we claim that we're not responsible for our sin, it's not that we have a corrupted nature, but we have a deficit in how we've been nurtured. If we claim that we have reached a level of spirituality that we're, where we no longer sin, verse 8, what does it say? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's a progression that we see in these claims that John is going to work out. I don't know if you saw that last week. It says if we claim to have fellowship with him while live in darkness, the Bible says that we lie. We lie to others. We lie to ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We do not live out the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we lie or we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves and the truth is not in us. Next week, Lord willing, if we claim to have not sinned, we make God to be a liar, and his word is not in us. John is exposing that there is a true deficit in our lives, but it's not a deficit of nurture. It's a deficit of truth. It's a deficit of God's word. And so what is the truth, the corrective truth that John counters this claim, this false claim with? Well, the corrective truth is found in verse 9, and that is do not conceal your sin. Instead, confess your sin. That's the corrective truth. Do not conceal your sin. Do not deny your sin. Confess your sin. Look again at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. This is the message of God's word. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. And so the few minutes that we have left, let's spend our time thinking about verse 9. If we confess... Instead of denying sin's presence, instead of concealing and covering up the reality of sin, the reality of personal sin, the Bible instructs us to confess 
our sin. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to confess our sins? Let me give you a, a number of insights that I think we can begin to glean out of this, this, just this verse here. When the Bible says confess your sins, what is the Bible saying? The Bible says confess your sins regularly and habitually. Confess your sins regularly and habitually. It, literally, the text is saying, if we are confessing our sins. It's a, it's a present tense verb. verb. It's a, so if we continue, if, if confession is a regular part of our lives, it's to be the pattern of our lives. It is to be a habitual, daily, ongoing um, uh, lifestyle where we, we were examining ourselves, we're confessing our sins sins to the Lord. This is what the Lord taught us in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 verse 12. Forgive us our what? As we forgive our debtors, right? And so we confess your sins uh, habitually, regularly. Confess your sins primarily to God. Confess your sins primarily to God. Although John doesn't explicitly tell us to confess our sins to God, it's certainly implied. Since it is God who forgives it is God to whom we must confess. Now listen, Scripture never tells us to confess our sins to a pastor, a priest, a friend, to obtain God's forgiveness. Right? The Bible nowhere tells us to do that. We always go to God in the confession of our sins. But I said, confess your sins, oh, number two, we got number two there, John? Confess your sins uh, primarily to God. I said primarily because there are times when in, addition to when in addition to confessing our sins to God, we are to confess our sins to others. I think this is important. When are we to confess our sins to others? When we have sinned against them. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught this. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. You hear what Jesus is saying? Instead of showing up with your offering when your brother or sister has something against you, you have sinned against them. Your first order of business is not to show up for church. Your first order of business is not to serve on a ministry team. Your first order of business is to go and to be reconciled with your offended brother or sister. And the implication is, is that we go confessing our sin, seeking to be reconciled. You say, how do we do that? Well, when you sin, you're to seek God's forgiveness. But it, as you sin against others, you're to go to them saying, I repent. And here's a way that we might be able to do that if we sin against someone. You go to them seeking their forgiveness in the same way that you seek the forgiveness of God. How do we do that? We name the sin. We go with words. I'm sorry, I sinned against you when I, and you fill in the blank. Let me give you some examples. I'm sorry that I sinned against you by lying to you. Or I'm sorry 
that I sinned against you by getting angry and saying those hurtful words. I'm sorry I sinned against you when I was impatient, when I became impatient with you and I became irritated by you or with you. I'm sorry I sinned against you when I disrespected you and did not value your opinions or your concerns. I'm sorry that I sinned against you when I did not listen to you, right? So we acknowledge the offense. We, we own the action. Then we ask for forgiveness. Will you forgive me? We don't blame them. Well, I wouldn't have done what I did if you wouldn't have done what you did. We don't make excuses. I'm really sorry I said what I said, but man, if you would have been with me today at 3 o'clock, you know, you'd understand why I did what, you know. We're making, no, we're not making excuses. We're not blaming. We're not minimizing it. Yeah, I'm sorry that I became impatient with you, but, you know, at least it wasn't as bad as last time. Will you forgive me? I'm totally responsible. Not your fault. I'm not blaming. It's me. Will you forgive me? You say, well, how public does my confession need to be? General rule of thumb? We need to confess our sin as wide as our sin is known. Right? I read this week of a lady under conviction about the sin of gossip and she responded to the public altar call to confess her sin and Bud Robinson, the pastor, received her at the front of the church and she said, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. Bud Robinson responded, the altar is only 16 feet, but lay it on there. <laughs> Probably not the most pastorally sensitive response, but you get the idea. Number three, confess your sins personally. This is the meaning of the word confess. Confess your sins personally, right? Confess, homo, homo legao, to say, to speak, legao, homo, the same thing. To say the same thing that God says about your sin. We're taking responsibility for sin. We're owning it. We're not making excuses. Psalm chapter 32, verse 5, David said, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Psalm chapter 51, verse 4. David said, against you and you only have I sinned. He confessed his sin to the Lord. It's my transgression. It's my offense, my wrong that I'm confessing to the Lord. Confess your sins with repentance. <clears throat> we're not confessing our sins because we're embarrassed by what we've done and people have found out. We're not confessing our sin because, well, we're afraid of what the outcomes might be. We confess our sins to the Lord with repentance. We're changing our mind about our actions and we're changing the direction of our lives. Confess your sins specifically, comprehensively. I appreciate the words of another pastor here. He said, when we confess our sins, we are confessing our particular and individual sins as well as the categories of our sins. Even all our sin inclusively. In other words, I like what he said. Sometimes it's, God, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Other times, it's, God, I sin with my mind. And sometimes it's, God, 
Here are the specific sins I've committed against you. Please forgive me. The concern of Scripture is not that we record in detail every sin that we've ever committed before God. We don't know the depth of our sin. You don't know the depth of your sin. I don't know the depth of my sin. But we're coming to the Lord with our sin. Sometimes when I'm praying, it's like, Lord, I confess to you the sins that I don't even know that I've committed. I'm just bringing it all to Christ. Sometimes I found it helpful in my own life to to use a list to work through, uh, to, to complete a moral inventory in my life. Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And I just go through there. Have I set up anything as another God against you? Have I taken your, have I lived in such a way where I've claimed to walk in the light as you're in the light, but I'm living in the darkness? Have I, li- have I taken your name in vain? Have I dishonored you? And dishonored your day? Have I coveted another man's possession? Have I lusted in my heart for another man's wife? Ten Commandments. The nine, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Am I living with joy, peace, love, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness? The Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, Matthew chapter 5. Poor in spirit, those who mourn, hunger and thirst for righteousness. The great commandment and its counterpart, Matthew chapter 22. Have I loved the Lord? Am I loving my neighbor? The point is this, is that we need to confess our sins specifically, comprehensively, bringing them to the Lord. Confess your sin expectantly. By this, I mean confess your sins expecting God to do what? What does 1 John say? If we're confessing our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive what? Our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness, let's not miss those two words, forgiveness, cleansing, has to do with the removal of sin, the guilt of our sin, right? So the guilt before a holy God is forgiven, it's removed, it's taken away. That's the essence of the word, to remove, to take away. God takes away the guilt when we confess our sin, cleanses, has to do with the stain, stained by sin, polluted by sin, God washes us, cleanses us, speaks of purification. So, I am quickly running out of time, the the runway is gone, so let's hurry. Why should we confess our sins? Don't miss the reason and the basis, right? This is important. If we confess, we can deny our sins, we lie, the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just. Why should we confess God is faithful? This is the reason why we confess God is faithful. God is dependable and trustworthy to do what He has promised to do. 
Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, the God, the compassionate, gracious God, slow and abounding, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Do you hear that? I am the Lord who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who God is. Psalm 86, verse 5, you, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call on you. God is faithful to do what he has promised. That's an amen. Don't worry about kickoff. It's going to happen, all right? We need, we need to know this. Why do we confess our sins? Because God is faithful. What's the basis? God is just. The word there, just, is the last word, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness, the same word for just with the Greek prefix A, the, un, un, the negation. So we can, God is faithful and righteous. God, why do we confess our sin? Because God is righteous. God conforms to his law. God conforms to his standard. Let me, let me give you an illustration, and then... I'll try to wrap it up. All right, here we go. Here's the illustration. Imagine someone has committed a horrible crime, a a heinous crime, and they stand before the judge, and they go, Judge, listen, I'm sorry for what I did. I need forgiveness. And the judge looks down at the criminal and says, Okay, I forgive you. Leave my courtroom. You're forgiven. You've been victimized by this criminal. His action, his crime has affected you. It would be an outcry. How, that, that's not justice. We want justice. And sometimes we have a sentimental view of God where we think God, well, God will just, he'll just, well, God's a forgiving God. He'll, he just forgives us. No, God is a just God who forgives. What does that mean? What did God say? What does the law require? Exodus, no, not Exodus, uh, well, in Exodus as well, you see it in the atonement, but um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, uh, I think it's Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 18, <laughs> I don't know where we got 34, Ezekiel 18, the soul who sins must die, D-I-E, die, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, right? Remember what I said at the beginning? Because we cannot deny our sin, Jesus Christ must become our advocate and our atonement. What the scriptures clearly reveal is that there has to be a payment for sin. The death of the criminal. Either you or somebody else in your place. God's perfect justice has to be satisfied Here's the gospel. Here's the good news. Why can we be confident and know with certainty that God will forgive our sin, your sin, all of it? The sin that you know that you've committed and the sin that you don't even know that you will yet commit. How can we be certain that God will forgive the sin of the unengaged, unreached people groups that we looked at earlier in the service? Because God's sinless son died 
in your place for your sin, in my place for my sin. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus Christ, our advocate, and our atonement for sin. What are you doing with your sin? Some of us, we have sin in our lives that we cherish. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Some of us are carrying that load of sin, thinking, well, I know God says confess, but man, how many times can I confess the same sin? And we're just trudging along under this guilt, this load. Maybe if I clean up my life somehow to a certain degree, maybe God will then really forgive me. Some of us are concealing our sin. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his sin does not prosper. What's the cure? Verse 9. Confess. Confess your sin.